Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Understanding what is going on with the economy is a challenge for experts, much less those of us regular folk who have to balance the books in our own households day in and day out. So today, we bring you expert voices who from their vantage point and perspective tackle inflation, interest rate hikes, unemployment, the possibility of a global recession. They also discuss their ideas for solutions in a discussion entitled Tackling Fossilflation, a Toolkit for Price Stability. They propose solutions that they claim will, quote, benefit workers and families and help advance the transition to abundant and affordable renewable energy, end of quote. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Hundreds are protesting the inauguration of Benjamin Netanyahu and the swearing-in of Israel's most far-right government in the country's history. Protesters were waving Israeli flags and LGBTQ rainbow flags in protest of the Zionist anti-LGBTQ members of Netanyahu's coalition, which has put West Bank settlement expansion as one of its priorities. It's likely to escalate tensions with the Palestinians. All Israeli settlements are illegal under international law. Today, Netanyahu also took aim at Iran as opposition members of parliament heckled him. His comments were translated by Al Jazeera. We will guarantee Israel's military advantage in the region through increasing empowerment. The first mission is to make sure that Iran won't annihilate us with nuclear bombs. And you dismiss it as if it isn't important, as if it's a small thing. Thank you very much, you who supported the nuclear agreement. Why are you shouting? Why don't you listen? You might learn something. Who are you to tell us? Who are you to educate us? The agreements also include a language endorsing discrimination against LGBTQ people on religious grounds. A right-wing anti-LGBTQ conservative will be head of education. Other agreements grant favors to Itamar Ben-Giver, a far-right politician who was convicted of inciting racism in 2017. He will be in charge of the National Police Force as a newly created National Security Minister. Netanyahu and his allies also agreed to push through changes meant to overhaul the country's legal system, specifically a bill that would allow Parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions with a simple majority of 61 lawmakers. Critics say it's a conflict of interest, noting Netanyahu is on trial for corruption charges, including bribery, fraud, and breaching public trust. Israel's ambassador to France, a Lapid ally, has resigned in protest of the incoming government. In the U.S., roads have reopened in Buffalo as authorities continue searching for people who may have died or remained stranded after last week's deadly blizzard. Officials are still asking people to not drive unless they have to. The National Guard went door-to-door. 36 deaths have been reported, 
in Buffalo alone. Erie County Executive Mark Polencar says he feared the National Guard wellness checks would find more people who have died. They are going door to door to do wellness checks in the neighborhoods that lost power every house. So if your neighborhood lost power, you're going to see a member of the National Guard over starting now through the next 48 hours who's going to knock on your door. Is everybody okay? Was there any issues that need, is, is anybody sick? Things like that. Uh, because we are fearful that there are individuals who may have perished living alone or two people who are not doing well in, a, in an establishment, especially those that still don't have power. Local officials face questions about their response to last week's storm, insisting they had prepared, but the weather was extraordinary even for a region prone to powerful winter storms. Russia has launched another massive missile strike in Ukraine. Air raid sirens rang out across the country this morning, including in the capital. The mayor of Kiev said numerous explosions took place. Forty percent of the city is without power. Three were reported injured, including a teenage girl. The city of Lviv was left with 90 percent without electricity. Ukraine's Air Force says it intercepted 54 Russian cruise missiles of 69 launched. The attack is the latest in a series of Russian strikes targeting civilian infrastructure like power and water supplies that have increased the Ukrainian population suffering in freezing weather. In the U.S., President Joe Biden has signed legislation aimed at encouraging law enforcement agencies across the country to adopt de-escalation training when encountering individuals with mental health issues as part of an effort to reduce the number of officer-involved fatalities. The House approved the bipartisan legislation last week as one of the final acts of the current Congress. An advocacy center for people with mental illness says people who are untreated are six times more likely to be killed during a police encounter than others approached by law enforcement. Long Island prosecutors have launched an investigation into New York Republican Congressman-elect George Santos after revelations surfaced he lied about his heritage, education and job history as he campaigned for office. Brazil's president-elect Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva has appointed an Amazonian activist Marina Silva as environment minister. Moves by several countries to mandate COVID-19 tests for passengers arriving from China reflect global concern new variants could emerge in its ongoing explosive outbreak. The U.S., Japan, India, South Korea, Taiwan and Italy have announced testing requirements for passengers from the country. I'm Christina Onestad reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines and we now turn to a discussion entitled tackling fossilflation a toolkit for price stability that took place online on december 6 2022 where panelists put forward policy proposals that they say members of congress could or perhaps should put in place policies they say could help communities across the country Speakers include Andres Bernal, who is the author of the Tackling Fossilflation Report, Chris Becker with Groundwork Collaborative, Lauren Melodia, the Center for New York City Affairs, Emily Park of 350 US, and Yiva Nersissian with Franklin and Marshall College. Let's go to that discussion right now. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for the launch of Positive Money U.S.'s first report, Tackling Fossilization, a Toolkit 
for price stability and a just transition. Positive Money US is a new branch of an international research and campaign organization working towards a money and banking system that enables a fair, democratic, and sustainable economy. My name is Akiksha, and I'm a campaigner with Positive Money. We have a really exciting discussion planned with some wonderful panelists. I'll start by sharing with you that I'm joining you today from the unceded ancestral lands of the Piscataway and Anacostan peoples of Washington, D.C. As we begin today's event, we recognize the history of colonization, genocide, broken treaties, and forced relocation by the United States government of Native peoples across Turtle Island. We must recognize that the financial and financial regulatory systems we are campaigning to change are also founded on racism and colonialism and were built to concentrate wealth in the hands of white people and to keep it from black indigenous and other people of color. Our work to change these systems must therefore also be accompanied by efforts to counter their extractive and exploitative roots. Please join me in honoring Black and Indigenous people's coerced contributions to this country and ongoing stewardship to the lands, waterways, and air we rely on. We honor and celebrate their resilience and commit to creating a future founded on respect and healing the deepest generational wounds by building bridges and mutual understanding. Colonialism and white supremacy are still very much alive and embedded in all facets of US institutions, and we need to build our mindfulness of our present participation in upholding these oppressive systems. As the title suggests, we're here to talk about inflation and what our leaders should be doing to tackle price instability. Over the course of this year, as a response to soaring prices, we've seen multiple interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, and the institution tasked by Congress with maintaining price stability and full employment. As Congresswoman Ayanna Presley stated in a hearing earlier this year so clearly with Fed Chair Jerome Powell, interest rate hikes are a blunt and imprecise tool that won't tackle the root sources of current inflation, like our over-dependence on fossil fuels, corporate profiteering, and supply-side issues that are now made worse by the crisis in Ukraine. As we'll learn tonight, rate hikes are actually really harmful and could have devastating consequences at home and around the globe. This conversation is an especially important one to have right now as we see the climate crisis worsen year after year, which we'll learn also isn't good for price stability. There has been a lot of congressional and civil society pushback against interest rate hikes recently, and polling commission for this report by Data for Progress confirms that sentiment. We found that nearly 70% of the public don't want more rate hikes, especially if it means putting millions of Americans out of work. So. It's pretty clear that at this point, we need better and fairer solutions to inflation. And for that, we'll need a different interpretation of inflation, one that allows for spending and planning instead of austerity. So how do we tackle inflation without hurting workers and ordinary people? And could the solutions to inflation actually help us win material changes in people's lives, like dignified jobs, better healthcare and housing, and help us achieve the just transition to clean energy? To discuss this and more, we have with us today the author of the report, Andreas Bernal, a lecturer at CUNY College of Labor and Urban Studies and doctoral student at the New School for Public Engagement. We have Lauren Melodia, who is the Deputy Director of Fiscal and Economic Policies at the Center for New York City Affairs. Chris Becker. Chris is a Senior Economist and Associate Director of Policy and Research at the Groundwork Collaborative. Yeva Narcissian 
research scholar at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity and associate professor of economics at Franklin and Marshall College, and Emily Park, an organizer with 350.org's Fossil Free Federal Reserve Campaign. I want to start off by thanking Positive Money US, Positive Money in general, for setting this up. I want to thank all panelists that are joining me here. Uh, all of you were influential in developing this report. To give a little bit of background as I get started um, at how I arrived at this report and, and this approach to inflation and climate change. So from the policy perspective, one of the biggest influences on, on me has been thinking about discourse or social narratives and how we debate political and policy issues and how these these narratives are act like portals into the world of how we think uh, the world works, what we think is possible, and the level of influence that this has on us. From the perspective of economics, um, I very much approach this work as uh, from a critical lens uh, on orthodox economics, which brought me to the world of heterodox economics, which I think is making a very important movement to question the dominant approach to expertise on the economy at the moment. To start off, where the policy agendas are at the moment, what the debate is, and what the challenge that we're facing is. I then move on to think about this concept called fossilflation, how it came to be, how I'm thinking about price and cost issues around the economy, and what the role of climate breakdown or the impact of climate breakdown and climate change, uh, how that's going to influence that moving forward, and in fact, how that's already influencing that issue now. Then I move on to talking about this idea of shock therapy, which basically is used to explain why we're still so insistent on using an approach, uh, mainly interest rate hikes um, and austerity or cutting public funding and the entire ideological or discursive paradigm, which tells us that this is the only thing we can do, cut costs, austerity, and use interest rates, how are we still here uh, in this moment? So I think like a little bit of a historical perspective and the role of these so-called policy expertise and experts have played on this. And this will lead us to the recommendations or what the approach to price stability for a just transition looks like. We're gonna talk about kind of institutional reforms, that can give us support in the here and now and moving on into the future, as well as some macro perspectives from fiscal policy, spending and taxation, as well as monetary policy or the role of the central bank and beyond. So here's, here's the issue. Uh, we're not on track to meeting our climate goals in order to keep the planet from warming over two degrees Celsius. And we're in fact moving towards 2.8 degrees uh, with current pledges and, and with current pledges, we'll only keep it to 2.4. Much of the industrialized world is not even prepared or doesn't even have the infrastructure to get it under two degrees Celsius. And this is all coming from the IPCC, right? So this is like probably one of the biggest issues humanity faces at the moment. But um, that's not even what the, the main policy debate is in the United States. In fact, this, this, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has big investments on climate, doesn't even mention climate in the title. Uh, instead, over the last year or so, we have been focused on debating inflation as something that is kind of seen like a problem here and now, something that working class families are facing, uh, something that is raising the cost of living for the vulnerable, to be able to move around the city, to be able to eat, to be able to buy things, all, all, right? It has become this central issue. So the cost of living, um, it, it's now dropping. There have been some developments in the last, you know, 
weeks, really. So these things are moving fast. But up until very recently, um, this was kind of the core debate. And it really, I think, drove a lot of um, Republican talking points leading up to the midterms, which I would uh, I would argue that had we had better answers to them um, on the progressive side, um, I think that we could have done even better. And instead of there not being really a red wave, perhaps we could have kept both chambers of Congress. Then we move on to the toolkit, which really is about how do we rethink the conventional analysis and policy responses to inflation? And how do we understand the reality that climate change and climate breakdown is in integral to and part of um, price stability itself? Okay, so something that was important was locating and drawing out this narrative of how inflation or costs or price issues became a problem in, in our society and our kind of cultural uh, public discourse. And it has a timeline that follows uh, certain specific events. So basically, it looks like the pandemic hit us. We went through a shutdown. Then we opened up the economy again. Then we had variants. Then there was a war in Ukraine that continues to this day. And this is kind of this storyline which aligns with these spikes in, in prices and in costs. Many pundits, I think the more conservative ones, will completely ignore that and just talk about there's too much money in the economy. And some of the more moderate economists will kind of of acknowledge that, but then move on to what they think is like the real expertise, which is like, you know, supply and demand and trying to pinpoint workers have too much income, households have too much income, and that's what really the problem is. But instead, uh, I kind of draw out this timeline and look at where exactly in the economy are these price issues. So this starts off, of course, looking at supply chains, which is the, the, the links that are moving things across the economy, producing things, entering into commerce and business with one another, et cetera. When the pandemic hits, when we close the economy and then we reopen it, it was hit very hard. And as a result, we have shortages, we have bottlenecks, there's crisis in shipping. All of these things, of course, is increasing costs. Uh, shipping containers going up in costs, semiconductors, lumber. This was a big part of the conversation throughout 2020 and 2021 until that started to come down. Another part of the conversation is shift in demand. As people went into lockdown, they changed what they were purchasing and how they were purchasing. But this, of course, has to be understood in a context. And that is that it, it it's very much dependent on on public policy, as in what was our vaccine rollout like? What is the state of our healthcare policy? All of these things influenced what people were doing and how people were buying, in addition to the very workers that are behind these supply chains. If they are getting sick all around the world, obviously this is going to increase costs because the people that are the frontline workers um, cannot work. Uh, they, they cannot be as efficient or effective. They're tired, they're exhausted. And that's a theme that will come up more throughout the report. And then lastly, something that has continued even as some of these supply chain issues were over time addressed was energy and food, which was peaking around June, very much connected to the war in Ukraine and very much connected to the shutdown and reopening as well. And then lastly, housing has been something that, that remains an issue, but it's important to note that 
um, housing was already above other price levels before the pandemic. You know, everything from the rent is too damn high to the different um, housing crises, the homelessness crisis, the affordability housing. This has been an issue that has gone on um, and seems to imply something beyond just supply and demand, um, which connects to the broader issue that I'll, that I'll get to in a moment. Um, so the last piece I think it's important to consider is that when the pandemic hit, you saw prices go down almost universally because we had shut down the economy and then they just skyrocket up again. Right. And as we measure inflation or this increase in costs, um, we have to take this into consideration that part of that impact is like the drop and then the, the rise again. So. One of the things that I argue and getting to this concept of fossilflation that sets up this whole conversation is that this issue of supply chains is very dependent on the fossil fuel economy. Why? Because in many ways it mirrors it. So in some sense, you have a globalized supply chain economy that is cost cutting or making profits off of the backs of the labor force, uh, of inequality, of the climate and of a very vulnerable series of industries to shocks um, that could not respond well because there is not a sufficient infrastructure uh, to a dependence on a just-in-time logistical system that was all thrown out of whack when this happened. In addition, we've seen oil producers unwilling to increase production and lower prices because of short-term financial interests of shareholders We've seen this in surveys and in calls again. And so this is kind of another way that, that the, the, the general economy is mirroring the political economy of the fossil fuel industry. And then lastly, another very important part to this is that all of the many and all of the inputs in the supply chain, so the things that components that make up uh, our, our industrial system that move things uh, across the world that feed people, that feed animals, all of this relies on the energy system itself. So the energy system undergirds um, the rest of the economy. And that's a very important thing to remember. So one of the examples that I give is as a consequence of the war in Ukraine, uh, you have this spillover effects through costs of inputs such as fertilizers, agrochemicals, fuel, the necessary energy required for electricity, uh, for water, irrigation, farm machinery, all of these things that were coming uh, around the world from uh, both Ukraine and Russia. Um, and so that having a, a huge influence um, as, as well. So all of this is to say that a, a world economy that is undergirded by the political, the political economy and the logic of the fossil fuel industry also um, is highly dependent on the fact that the fossil fuel economy is contributing to climate breakdown itself. So if the climate is breaking down, and I talk about the five scenarios that the IPCC gives us in terms of like how do we keep warming under two degrees and even under 1.5, as the climate breaks down, as there are these, these environmental events and shocks uh, in droughts, in uh, flooding, fires, damage to infrastructure, uh, mass migration and displacement, all of these things are going to influence this whole supply chain system that moves, produces, and, and brings you know, to the public of the different goods and services that we need, which will massively increase costs as well and make things far, far worse. 
All right. So with that setup, you know, the question that comes to mind is this is costs are about resources. What resources do we use? What do we use them for? What's the quality of the resources? What are the relationships that these resources have to one another? How are we organizing these things? And yet we keep going back um, to this conventional model, uh, which has been deeply, deeply problematic. So in this section, one of the things that I do is I talk about the rise of Paul Vogler and this conventional approach to interest rate management, um, which for a while was um, about managing the money supply through reserves and, and some other technical things. But the point here being that this was really a radical response against the New Deal legacy. At that time, things were actually done quite differently and, and there was a different debate going on. And I think we've very much forgotten much of that in kind of conceding to this conventional wisdom that there are these natural laws to the economy. And so in this sense, I, I talk about, you know, how did we get to this hegemonic economic paradigm that has naturalized abandonment and impoverishment? By that, I mean, we have, we have used these ideas like the Phillips curve, the natural rate of interest and the natural rate of unemployment to basically say the economy as this natural thing out there says that you have to have certain people unemployed because that's just the way it is. Interest rates reflect this natural dis demand for credit. Um, and it's because, you know, um, the, the equilibriums are just making themselves out. All of these thought experiments that are very much missing, um, you know, the real world institutions and context um, and all of these critical things, too. And these things became very dominant. Paul Volkler was openly against unions. He believed that the standard of living from the New Deal and the Great Society era was too high and was an illusion. Um, and so as a consequence, very much in line with the ideology of Milton Friedman and this kind of neoliberal turn, which was being pushed by the idea of sound money or sound finance, uh, which had behind it this whole uh, paradigm of the quantity theory of money, which instead of talking about costs as resources, it was talking about you can't have too much money in the economy because money is a commodity. And if you do that, then the value of currency is going to disappear. And this is still with us to this day, dominating how we approach many of these issues. So we've, we've kind of turned to seeing money as a commodity uh, and away from thinking about resources and, and, and their costs. So this very much obscures market power. It obscures institutions. It obscures normative questions, political questions. It kind of reduces the conversation to some experts that um, claim to have authority over these things um, without seeing the, the bigger picture. And so what we've seen, for example, is an attack on, uh, on the fiscal stimulus to the pandemic, the, the, the idea that we spent too much even though we reduced poverty, we reduced childhood poverty, you know, these economists keep insisting that that was, that was the problem, right? And so I, I go into detail about um, what exactly did the fiscal response of the Biden administration through the pandemic really do, the effects that it had, but even the lingering vulnerability and precarity that much of the public still has. So this calls for a radically new framing of, of what we need to do, how we need to debate uh, this problem of costs and inflation and what the best responses are. Okay, so 
in thinking about price stability for a just transition, I think the first very important point is that green energy itself lowers energy costs and stabilizes prices in a far more effective way than the fossil fuel economy. And there's been great work done by the Roosevelt Institute and, and Lauren Melodia, who's on the panel here, um, that talks about the different ways that it does exactly that. We can talk about experience curves, which means every time that solar panels or wind turbines are deployed, uh, it is lowering costs 30 percent uh, and 16 percent. Um, you know, we're improving this technology every single time. The faster we deploy renewables, the faster costs will fall. Um, renewables are, on average, much more stable than fossil fuels, and the quality qualitative dimensions of renewable energy, solar and wind um, are much more cost effective. They have natural replenish replenishment capabilities uh, and they lack fuel costs. So all of this is all of this contributes to just a far more stable energy infrastructure. Um, I think there's a case to be made as well for um, a reduction in the likelihood of these geopolitical, you know, aggressions and imperialisms over control of, you know, scarce resources through oil. Now, with that said, um, there's a lot of conversation about minerals like lithium that are that are um, vital to building out the, the renewable energy um, system. But I think it gives us an opportunity to, you know, align this movement um, with democratic ideals because we're not quite there yet at that just transition. And that's why the word just exists in the just transition as well. So with that in mind, um, I have some kind of institutional reforms and structural reforms that I advocate for in this new approach. Okay, so some of the institutional reforms and strategies involved first and foremost targeted price controls. Now, this was ridiculed by a lot of the mainstream press and orthodox economists as something that Nixon tried and it failed or, uh, you know, just kind of central planning and it doesn't work. Totally missing the point of how much it worked during the Second World War, A, and then B, the fact that targeted price controls are exactly that. They're targeted price controls. So, Right now, Isabella Weber has been working in Germany to have a, a situation where, you know, their country is facing a, an, an energy crisis because of, of the situation in Ukraine and the war. Um, and so those price controls are meant for uh, people to have access to a certain level of, of energy to meet their needs at a certain price. And then beyond that, um, you know, they people will pay, quote unquote, market prices for that. So. The, the idea here is to not allow things to spiral for people um, who will be very much affected by um, prices that dictate, you know, things that everybody needs and allow time to be bought to uh, improve the kinds of investments, the resilience and the kind of changes or responses that might address problems at that whole at that more holistic or st structural angle. Uh, so it's a very valuable tool. And uh, other things that I advocate for, antitrust, and this really speaks to the degree to which our supply chain economy has become so vulnerable. And a lot of that has to do with massive consolidations over the last uh, few decades, um, where everything from shipping to energy um, to other, you know, other key areas of the economy, food, uh, have been consolidated under a handful of companies that are making record profits and in doing so have... Uh, a, a high level of price setting power. 
because everybody needs to eat. Um, everybody needs to access to you know, healthcare. We can think of that as well. And people are setting prices wherever they want. They're making profits. They're on these calls, talking to one another, celebrating these things, right? I think that it is definitely time to have a conversation about what a contemporary antitrust uh, approach needs to do. Public healthcare lowers costs, whether we're talking about expanding the system we have now, or I think ideally Medicare for all, we know that that is anti-inflationary because not only does it free up resources because we don't rely on all these middlemen and, and uh, that, that the uh, private insurance system, the bloated private insurance system that is also price gouging us in many ways brings to the table, um, but it also just lowers costs in general by allowing uh, the, the healthcare system to be more effective um, and to be more responsive and resilient to something like pandemics. We know that had we had a good Medicare for all or universal public health care system prepared, um, we would have been much more um, able to respond to a pandemic like the one that hit us. Public transportation as well. If we have a situation like skyrocketing energy prices um, and gas is growing up, I advocate and recommend that uh, the federal level work with mayors at the local level to offer free public transportation for riders. Um, I use the example of, of, of Boston um, and what they're trying out with the new mayor um, that has kind of laid out a prototype for a local Green New Deal idea. And this could be something where costs could be covered on the back end by the federal government as well. So we get more people uh, to use public transportation. We reduce the reliance on uh, cars and energy, which just in general, that's a good idea climate-wise, but also buys time to address energy, energy issues more broadly. Uh, the PRO Act, so strengthening labor unions is a big part of this as well. Again, vulnerable supply chains, vulnerable economy. Much of this has to do with just how bad workers have been hit. Farm Workers Modernization Act, this, this is a, a, another key piece to the problem of scarcity in workers, farm workers, um, this crisis that we have with undocumented workers who are oftentimes in farm working and agricultural industries. You know, it speaks to the need for comprehensive immigration reform, humane immigration reform, et cetera. Um, but also this has the, the potential to very much um, create a more resilient agricultural system. And then lastly, a savings policy. Instead of the blunt instrument of interest rates, which, you know, again, the whole idea behind that is essentially to push the economy into a recession or rather to you know push down demand as much as possible so we we can basically bring prices back down by incentivizing people to lose their income people to lose their jobs well if we really wanted to bring down some of that demand we can use savings policy and have like a targeted approach where the government can sell bonds to people disincentivize their immediate spending and they can spend later. That's another approach that it's not in the mainstream that should be. All right, fiscal policy. So I think this is where like the, the real key stuff happens. We need to rethink budgets. We've been, you know, since I've been an adult, obstructed on any kind of progressive change by the idea that we don't have any money left and that we're going to expand the federal deficit or the national debt, et cetera, et cetera. This tells us very little about what actually is the state of the economy, where resources are at. So one way to rethink budgets is to instead repurpose institutions and agencies like the CBO, like the OMB, um, agencies that basically give our Congress reports on how much is the deficit going to go up or how much is the debt going to go up. 
We will take a short station break and when we return, we will hear more from panelists on their toolkit for price stability. You're listening to Sojourner Truth with host Margaret Prescott. Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Idaho and internationally. I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners uh, north of the border in Canada. We are now going to return to a discussion that happened online on December 6, 2022, entitled Tackling Fossilflation, a Toolkit for Price Stability. If we understand inflation as something that is much more grounded in resources, let's repurpose these agencies to give us specific information about the state of the economy. You know, where might there be scarcity and shortages? Where might there be lacks in, in, uh, in, in labor capacity? Where might, they, might there be supply chain issues? How are our ports? What's the state of labor? There's so much information that you, know, you and I might not have at the top of our head, but if we actually use people that are experts in data uh, to tell us what the state of our economy is, we will have a much better way to understand how much can we actually spend because uh, the, the issue with spending is whether our economy can handle it, do we have the resources, do we have the resources in specific areas that are going to receive and mobilize that spending to do work. This brings us to the idea of real returns on investment. Instead of thinking about how much money can the government make back on whatever it is it spends, let's start thinking about the real deficits that matter and the real returns that matter. So we have a deficit in mental health. Uh, We have a deficit in clean water and clean air. We have a deficit in people's quality of life. All of these things are very, very important. Those things need to be addressed. And instead of thinking about the government making its money back, let's what are the real social environmental returns that we want? Because government's not the private sector. It's not like a household. Got to think from a macro holistic perspective. And so uh, what I recommend here is let's rethink budgets and let's think about real returns on investment. The purpose of all of this, right, is to better evaluate how much we can go big and bold on things like a Green New Deal, totally retrofitting our housing and transitioning as much as possible. All right, speeding up here. Automatic stabilizers, uh, that's another key thing. Instead of, uh, so some people critique approaches that say, oh, you know, politics will get in the way, Congress will get in the way. We need to set up some automatic stabilizers so that when something goes wrong, immediately there's a response, there's a policy response. Medicare for all is an automatic stabilizer. And the most important one that I have here is the job guarantee. That is to say, if there's unemployment, the federal government through a program employs all of that unemployment. And as an economy recovers and private businesses want more jobs, they can hire from the job guarantee program. This also puts pressure and a standard on what um, the base level wage and base level working conditions need to be. It puts pressure on the private sector, et cetera. And then lastly, strengthen the public sector's capacity, actually fund it, resource it, create better relationships with local communities, 
with democratic initiatives and social movements at local communities, all of these things will increase trust and also allow us to have more administrative capacity. Thinking about monetary policy, the first thing that I have here is to rethink central banking. So in the conversation, we often hear that the central bank needs to be independent, but we need to bring back to mind that central bank independence can mean that it's going to be independent from the political process and from politics and all that stuff. But that doesn't mean it's independent from democratic accountability. That doesn't mean that it's independent from political and social norms. That doesn't mean it's independent from, you know, um, what the IPCC is telling us about the climate emergency. Um, and so thinking about how the, the central bank and our Federal Reserve uh, is still accountable to the people, it is still an, uh, a creature of Congress, and it is always it always overlaps with things that are happening at the Treasury and other agencies as well. So instead of relying on interest rate hikes, this blunt tool that causes social consequences, that can raise poverty, that impacts people of color disproportionately, that can have effects on the global South in Latin America or Africa or other places in the world, all of these uh, dysfunctional, destructive things from interest rates. Instead of doing that, if we really want to manage demand, what we can do is instead set quantitative and qualitative credit regulation on the private financial system. It is issuing loans. It is issuing finance. It is financing the fossil fuel economy. And, uh, and that's a problem. So quantitative and qualitative credit regulation, who's getting loans, what sectors are getting loans, what actions are like consolidations and mergers are getting loans. Let's put some regulations on those instead and limit how much private lending can go out into the economy, instituting a green lending scheme that complements the big federal spending as well. And then lastly, an interagency council on price stability so that central bank is not the sole responsible agent for this kind of regulation that, that can be shared with uh, the treasury, with fiscal policy as well. And we can add labor's input into this. And this means that we can think about things other than demand and supply chains ports, et cetera, we can monitor these things and respond when needed to strengthen them, create more resilience. So costs are embedded in normative and political decisions. We need to start thinking about resources and a just transition is the best and most eff effective path towards price stability. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andreas, for that comprehensive presentation. I'd like to first bring in Lauren. Lauren, please share your thoughts on this report, and then we would be particularly interested in hearing your thoughts on the role fossil fuels play in driving price instability, why they're harmful for the economy, and as Andreas highlighted, the benefits of transitioning to renewables. Well, um, I really appreciate joining you all today, Andreas. The report is great, and I feel like I'm most excited about the toolkit um, and digging into that more. But to keep things brief, I will try and answer the questions that you just brought up. Just a reminder, my name is Lauren Melodia. I am the Deputy Director of Economic and Fiscal Policies at the Center for New York City Affairs. And while I was at the Roosevelt Institute last year, I began closely monitoring inflation, which has now resulted in the highest inflation the U.S. has seen in 40 years. There are a lot of different contributing factors, which Andreas already went into, but it's clear that energy and fossil fuels are some of the main drivers of price stability over the past year during the pandemic and also historically. One thing I wanted to mention is that the Federal Reserve and other macroeconomists typically exclude energy and food from their measure of inflation because of the inherent volatility of these prices. 
But these are also some of the main prices consumers face on a daily basis. So in some way, the fact that energy prices, which are currently largely determined by fossil fuel prices, are omitted from the Federal Reserve's measure of price stability signals that we've accepted the constant volatility of fossil fuel prices as the backdrop of our economy, rather than as an alarming indicator of the precarity of our energy dependence. So instead of simply ignoring energy, I feel like climate change and record high inflation really demand that we engage with this instability. And the truth is that energy doesn't have to be volatile, but it is if it's reliant on fossil fuels. Fossil fuel prices are inherently volatile for a few reasons. One is that their finite nature and the time-sensitive and significant extraction and production costs lead to price volatility. Another is that our economy is built around a dependence on fossil fuels in particular formats. Our cars can only run on one type of gas. Our homes can only be heated with one type of oil or gas. Energy in and of itself is a type of necessity that people can't typically delay consuming. And then because it's required for almost everything. And then the fact that, you know, with fossil fuels in particular, our lives are designed around dependence on very specific types of fossil fuels. It means that we also can't easily switch from one source to another. And what this means is that it's an incre our energy sources right now are incredibly inelastic so that an increase in a price won't less necessarily lead people to consume less of something. Instead, it'll contribute to further price increases. Andreas already mentioned, you know, that some of the geopolitical power structures where companies and countries collude for power and profit also kind of exacerbate fossil fuel price volatility. Um, there's also the financial sector. You know, volatility in and of itself kind of invites speculation because, you know, if it's going to be if it's going to be changing a lot, then there's gains to be made if you can hedge your bets, you know, successfully. So the you know, the volatility in and of itself kind of is exacerbated by the by the financial sector. Um, and then lastly, I would say fossil fuels make climate change worse, obviously. So our continued use of them will lead to more climate disaster, which adds more supply and demand shocks to energy, which also seeds further price instability. All of these features are always under the surface of our energy systems. So while some may choose to ignore them as inherently volatile and therefore not a good measure of price stability in the economy at large, they actually do have a huge impact on the macro economy, which I think is often ignored. Um, and that is, you know, if you actually look at crude oil prices, which are the number one determinant of gasoline prices, you can see that since World War II, the past 12 economic recessions that have taken place in the United States were preceded by large oil price increases. This is because, as I mentioned earlier, when energy prices rise, people have to keep paying the, the cost of them. And it means that they have less money to spend in other parts of the economy where there is more productive capacity for economic growth. So it's just like it zaps up your income and then we slow the economy down. We have a recession. Now, some people might be resigned to these dynamics, but others, like those of us who are here today, understand that the design of our energy system and the reliance on certain energy sources is a choice. And so we, you know, we do have the option to make a different choice. Um, the last thing I'll just run through is that renewable energies, 
used through the electric grid would actually function in a very different way than fossil fuels. And this is why I was saying, you know, that energy doesn't have to be inherently volatile. It's fossil fuels that are. Um, so they have very different pricing dynamics. You know, Andreas already mentioned some of this, but some of the features of fossil fuels simply don't exist with renewables. They're publicly available right now. They're renewable. They're infinite. We don't have these fuel input costs. Um, and I agree that there's this challenge about making sure accessing them is equally available. And so we have to figure out how the limited resources that are needed to make wind turbines and batteries and solar panels are equally or equitably distributed. But technically, you know, once we have it set up, we don't have the fuel costs and the, the finite nature of fossil fuels creating this volatility with the prices. Those are completely absent. So it means that renewables are going to have, and we already start seeing, have more stable prices. And we don't have a lot of consumer data on renewable energy prices yet, but we do know that their production shows stable prices and it's becoming more sustainable. And on top of this, you know, one of the things that I wanted to mention is that their delivery through the electricity market would further increase their price stability. Now, the electricity sector is far from perfect, but in the United States, it is actually the most regulated sector of the energy industry. And so this and the design of the electricity sector to be able to deliver on-demand energy utilizing a variety of sources means that it's really equipped to deal with renewables. And we can already see through the design of the sector and its regulation, historically, it's had impressive price stability um, compared to other energy sectors, even though right now the, the main source of energy in the electricity system is fossil fuel-based. So not only is transitioning to renewables going to slow climate change and protect the planet, it also happens to have many benefits for the economy, including reducing inflation and price volatility and the harm that those things then wreak on the rest of the economy and society. So I'll wrap it up there and thank you so much. Thanks so much, Lauren. That was great. I'd now like to bring in Chris. Chris, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the report and then particularly your thoughts on the importance of full employment and then imagining alternatives to the Fed's macroeconomic management for achieving a green transition. Yes, uh, thank you so much. And thank you for the great report and presentation, Andres. Um, you know, my initial thing I would point out is that I think the current crises that we're facing really foreshadow a lot of the challenges that we're going to have in achieving a green transition. So one thing we know for sure is that our current economic and political system was not well equipped to handle challenges related to sudden disruptions and increases in the cost of living. And energy really was, uh, you know, central to this story. You know, just directly shortages from the war in Ukraine meant that families in Europe couldn't heat their homes, skyrocketing gas prices put strain on American families' budgets. And as a new paper by Isabella Weber shows, um, fossil fuel industries were the most important industries in driving inflation economy-wide. Because not only are they important to consumers directly, but also, as Andres was alluding to, fossil fuels are really important inputs into the production process for all other sectors, so that uh, price increases in fossil fuels become cost increases across the economy. And so in the long run, what we know we need for a green transition is that we actually need to make these fossil fuels more expensive and eventually phase them out entirely. 
And so we definitely need to do that. But I think we also need to recognize that in the short, short run, that is going to impose a lot of costs on consumers and families if we don't find policies that are going to deal with those cost of living problems. And we've already seen what happens if we adopt policies like carbon price, carbon pricing that make fossil fuels costly without um, finding a way to support consumers. You end up getting political protests for those policies, and often they end up being abandoned before there's ever a chance to achieve the long-term goals of affordable, stable, clean energy. So it's also necessary just for the political project that we find ways to deal with this cost of living crisis. The problem is that on the policy side is that we've outsourced uh, the responsibility for price stability to just the Federal Reserve, who only has one policy in its toolkit to address price stability, which is increasing interest rates and slowing demand, which is exactly the opposite of what you want to do if your inflation challenges are coming from the supply side. If you want to overcome bottlenecks and shortages like those that we've seen during the pandemic with supply chains or from the war in Ukraine, as well as what we need in order to uh, get a clean energy transition, what you really need is investment. And Federal Reserve interest rate hikes make it a lot less likely that we actually get those investments off the ground. On the one hand, you know, the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates directly increases the cost of borrowing. And so it makes it more expensive for businesses to make the investments that we need. And at the same time, slowing demand, which is the explicit policy goal of the Federal Reserve, also is going to make investments much less likely. You know, there, there's a real tension in our in our in where our policy sits right now, where on the one hand, we're trying to encourage investment in clean energy through the Inflation Reduction Act, through tax credits and subsidies that are trying to encourage businesses to make investments. And at the same time, the Federal Reserve is trying to slow growth in the economy, trying to lower wage growth, create unemployment, and put less money in, in the hands of, of consumers who, you know, who, who can then spend that money on the products being coming out of these investments. And so we're asking uh, you know, businesses to incur a cost, um, take on risk to make these clean energy investments, but at the same time telling them that we're going to tank the economy, slow consumer demand that would allow you to make a profit once you produce these products and are able to sell them to consumers. So the first reason we really need full employment is that ensures strong economic growth and stable demand that creates an environment that's conducive to investment and allows us to you know, make those investments that we need for a green energy transition. The other thing I would point out is that full employment is necessary because we need to mobilize millions and millions of workers to achieve an energy transition. We need to mobilize millions of workers to do things like, in, like uh, build green, green infrastructure, update our, the energy efficiency of our buildings, or conserve the environment. We can't afford to have this extra slack in the economy that comes from unemployment. And what, what we really need is all hands on deck with worker mobilizing as many workers as possible to achieve as quick a transition as we can. The last thing I would point out is that I think when we think about full employment, we need to think about not just providing jobs to people and guaranteeing that everyone has a job, but also that these are good jobs. Okay, so I think it's also essential that we um, push for policies like unionization, as Andres pointed out, or a job guarantee. Where the, where the government directly provides jobs to people at good wages and with good working conditions, 
Because at the end of the day, if we want a broad coalition that's going to support a green energy transition, transition and get behind it politically, we need to be building a future for workers that is better than the one that one they have now. And one thing you can say for the fossil fuel industry, despite all of the problems, is that a lot of times it has created good jobs, especially in places like West Virginia or Louisiana that are really dependent on these industries. And so when we're creating these green jobs, we really need to make sure that they're good jobs. And while the Federal Reserve may be able to bring down unemployment by stimulating demand, it has no way of really guaranteeing that those are good jobs that are going to be appealing to people and get that buy-in on political support. The last thing I would point out is that they need to be good jobs because we're also learning during the recent crisis that exploited labor is not reliable labor. We're seeing that many of our supply chain issues are brought up on by the precarious situation that supply chain workers find themselves in. There aren't enough people to unload uh, inventory at docks. We see that railroad workers are currently um, threatening to go on strike because of the working conditions that they're facing. And so I think we need to create good, stable, high quality green jobs, just so we have workers who are fully bought in to their jobs, who we can rely on and, um, you know, so that we can mobilize as much resources towards the task of achieving a green transition as possible. Okay, we are out of time. I'd like to thank the organizers of the event for allowing us to make this audio available to you. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott, but I want to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, who did the editing to put the show together today. I'd like to thank our engineer, Gary Baca. If you would like to have a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Stay tuned for more programming on this local station. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you all please stay well and safe.